If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn them to uh, Psalm chapter 24. Psalm 24. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to preach anytime the Lord um, and through John, Pastor John gives me the opportunity to preach. I'm delighted to, and so I will take it. Um, Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we thank you that you are good, that you have given us your word, and you have not left us wandering around in the dark to find our way ourselves. But through the work of your Son, we might know you, the true God. And I pray that you would reveal him to us through your word. And I pray that your spirit would open our hearts to behold wondrous things out of your law. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyone who's seen an old Western can kind of get the gist of what's about to go on. There's a, you can tell who the good characters and the bad characters are by the color of the hats they're wearing. You know, the white hats are the good guys, and the black hats are the bad guys. Um, and you know, at some point, there's going to be a confrontation in the film. That's the gist of most, of most Westerns. In the same sense, or in a similar sense, and as we read through Psalm 24, and we, we kind of understand, we see the Creator God and the Holy God and the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And we can anticipate that there's going to be a confrontation coming. We come to this psalm, a psalm that's preoccupied with the majesty of God. If you were to discuss a theme throughout the psalm, it would be His majesty. David moves through the various aspects of God's nature. God is creator God is the Holy One, and God is the Great King. And these aspects are further highlighting one of the central questions of the psalm, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? This, this main point of this psalm deals with the interaction between the King of glory, the Holy God, and who may ascend into His holy hill. Who is approved to enter into God's sight? Can we do so by following this, this list that we've just read in verses 3 through 7? 
I'll deal with this psalm in, the, in this order. The Creator God, the Holy God, and the Glorious King. Verses 1-2, through two, The earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded upon the sea, and established it upon the river. Taking a look at this fir- these first two verses, we see first the superscript, which is the Psalm of David portion where it just says a psalm of David. These things are often ignored, but they can often tell us a little bit about what's in the individual psalm. They don't always tell us much. Um, Obviously, this one is not terribly complicated. And they occasionally will group like psalms together or separate off a section, one from another. So, But all we know from this one is that David wrote the psalm. We don't know anything about the circumstances he wrote it in. Um, We could guess, but... That doesn't always do much good. Um, and it doesn't tell us much. Um, and another thing to look for is where in the book, in the Psalter, the psalm lies. Um, the Psalter, if you're not aware, is divided into five books. Um, the first one ranging from chapter 1 through verses 42, or through chapter 42. And in the particular psalm we're in is a group of five psalms that deal with an overarching theme of divine kingship. We don't always think about Psalm 23 as as something that has kingship flowing through it, but um, 20 and 21, Psalm 20 and 21 has various themes, and 24 would be the last of these five group or these five psalms that talk about the divine kingship. In the first two verses, David refers to the creation of the world. We see that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the river. From these words, we see that the Lord owns the earth and everything in it. He is responsible it is a good creation. But when we read through the Genesis account, one of the things we're struck by is all that is good in God's creation. The earth is not evil. The matter is not evil. As a matter of fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 26, when he quotes the beginning of this psalm. Um, to combat the idea that meat offered to idols is intrinsically evil. He says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What's his point? His point is that what God has given us, we can use it to glorify Him. God owns it. God made it. And it obviously should um, go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Um, The earth as it is and humans as we are are tainted with sin. And so there is going to be an element of sin. But the earth itself is not evil. It is in the process of being redeemed. Romans 8, we read later, says the whole world groans and travails in the pains of childbirth. But it awaits redemption. Even as our bodies await redemption, so also God is remaking this earth. The earth was made by God, and it is upheld by God. The word fullness 
here in the earth is the Lord's in its fullness refers to all the things in the earth, everything we see around us. Um, God has filled it with. For example, Jeremiah 8.16 uses similar word pairs to refer to the extent of the destruction. It would fill Israel. God has made man and has given him a purpose in this world and has set this world in a good order. Similarly, we see that the psalmist grounds this first verse by saying, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Notice the the word for. What's this saying? Uh, Now some people, a little bit less conservative, would say that this is David um, yielding to ancient myths and that view the sea as chaos and the earth as as a floating disk on the waters. Um, I think what he's actually trying to say is that God has created it with an order. He uses the word sea because a lot of ancient customs did have an idea of sea as chaos. But he's saying God created everything in this world and put an order behind it. God didn't triumph over chaos. The sea is not something outside of God's will. Rather, what he's saying is he's forcefully saying that God made an ordered world. Everything in this world has an order and a purpose, and nothing is outside of his command, outside of his will. Proverbs 8 uh, reinforces this idea. Um, refers to wisdom as personified in this section of Scripture. And is saying, I was the first of his acts of old. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. The point of that section of Proverbs, um, some of the ancient commentators used it as a Christological reference, but I think one of the points is that God has filled this world and made this world in understanding, in wisdom. But not only did he create it that way, he's upholding it that way, and he's taking it there. Psalm 136, 5-6 states that in understanding, God established the worlds. As Sproul would have said, there is no maverick molecule. So what should we take from this? Do you find yourself surrounded by worry? I think every, at some point everybody looks and sees something that worries them. Um, I found I had more worries when with kids. Uh, but I think one thing you can take from this is that the world is not outside of God's command. The things that are happening around us and whatever you view as worrying, personal, global, whatever, God is taking the world to its redemption. You don't have to worry because God has it under control. God is redeeming this world. And secondarily, I think another little bit more, another application, another inference we can take from this is we sometimes are tempted to think that, look back at people who lived in monastic lives, took vows, aesthetic vows, and lived in poverty and say, well, those are the really spiritual people. 
when God created the world and God created it in its goodness, that means whatever God has given us to do is a means of glorifying Him. You are not necessarily more spiritual because you are involved in one thing or because you don't you abstain from something else. God has given us these things and we can glorify Him through it. Luther developed the doctrine of vocation. Not developed it, but it kind of came to a head there. And one of the points of it was, we often think of vocation in terms of someone's individual job, but just means calling. And Luther's understanding of calling was that God has given each of us a certain calling, and we are to be faithful in it. Whether that's a husband, a father, whatever job we've been given to do, and there are ways that we all can glorify God through it. We don't have to go off and live in a monastery somewhere to be super spiritual. Um, we are to rejoice in the world that God has made. Cultivate contentment in it. And realize that all that we see around us is a product of His grace. Our families, our friends, our church. It's all a product of His grace. The psalmist switch gears, switches gears here in verse 3 and says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, the face of the God of Jacob. David then switches his focus by asking two pertinent but related questions. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall ascend his holy place? Now some have referred this to this as being a liturgical move. The word ascend is often used for process. There later on you'll see Psalm of Ascents, Psalms from like 120 to 132 or so. Um, I may have messed that up, but those Psalms are Psalms of Ascent. A lot of people, um, it refers to a procession. Um, I think more pertinent here is the His holy place in Mount Zion. It's associated with Mount Zion. Psalm 15 has a lot of overlap with this psalm. If you were to go read it this afternoon, you, could, you can see the parallels. You can hear the parallels in both Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, and even parts of Isaiah 33. Um, and, psalm, and it refers to the Lord's holy hill. Psalm 2 refers to where the Lord has placed His King, which is on Zion, on my holy hill. Mountains play a pretty key role in a lot of biblical metaphors in the development of the presence of the Lord. Eden, for example, which you may not, I'm not, may not think about necessarily, but Eden, Ezekiel 28-13-14, through 13 through 14, is assumed to be on the mountain. It's the holy mountain of God. Similarly, Genesis 2.6 and then 10-14 through 14 refers to a spring which flows into four rivers that then waters the garden of God. And so, um, as we go throughout Scripture, we see 
Mountains often portray a special place, a place of holy access before God. Moses ascends Mount Sinai that the people are afraid to go up, and there gives his law to his people. In the New Testament, Jesus goes up a mountain, stands on the hillside, and delivers the Sermon on the Mount. And so when we go through Scripture, we see that this is a special place of holy access. This is the picture that we're getting here. The hill of the Lord and the holy place is a special of holy access by which we can worship God. Levites were set on the, on the temple mount to guard it to make sure no impurities entered the temple. First Chronicles 26, 1-19 refers to this. What's the point of all this? The psalmist is recognizing that the mountain is a picture of the worshiper entering God's presence and into which the holy and the impure are not permitted to enter. With the coming of our great King and God and holy God, does anything change in our realm? When we come into His presence, does this affect the way we live? And relatedly, um, Isaiah 33, 14-15 asks the question, Who among us may dwell with consuming fire? This understanding recognizes the absolute transcendent holiness of our God. The God who cannot dwell with impurities. One of the things we see in Scripture is that when people, even those who have seen Jesus, when people see the glory of the Lord and are confronted with the divine presence, you're immediately aware of their sinfulness. Isaiah refers to himself as a man of unclean lips. This reflects, this portion of Scripture reflects the twin problems of divine holiness. The problem is not there, but of human sinfulness. And it adds a question. We read through this list and we see he who has a clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, this one receives a blessing from the Lord. And it confronts us with a question. How? Is this list prescriptive or descriptive? Does this mean that we are to climb, that these are the rungs of a ladder into which we can climb into God's presence? And by these things we may merit Salvation may merit his presence. Obviously, I believe the answer to that question is no, in case you're wondering. Um, but let's go through some of this. We are told that the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Within these couple of verses, we have the start of a couple of don'ts, which are balanced out by rewards and do's. Um, and first, there's a couple. There's another couple of things to notice. This list is not exhaustive. This isn't every. He's not listing everything that you could possibly do uh, to stand in his presence. If you were to go back to Psalm 15 that I referenced earlier, there are other things in that list that are not in Psalm 24. And it's not that Psalm the psalmist forgot, but he's giving an overview and has a specific point in this. Um. 
Secondarily, it may surprise you because if you were an Israelite, a Hebrew, and you were singing the psalm or you're chanting the psalm or you're hearing the psalm, what would you expect about who may enter his temple? You would expect, you know, well, I've done this, so I need to cleanse myself in this way. In Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy, you have a lot of ceremonial cleanliness laws. This is not what is referenced here. Pure hands and clean hands and a pure heart does not refer to ceremonial cleanliness. It's not referring to these various stipulations that we find in the book of Leviticus. Rather, it's talking about being faithful to God in the way he has called us to walk. It's talking about um, having a pure heart. Secondly, you'll notice that there's a repre- the representation is the heart, which is the center of man's being, and the hands which manifests the heart's desires. So you see an inward feature and an outward feature. And a lot of people want to concern themselves with one or the other. And he's combining the two in this. And thirdly, as I mentioned earlier, the adjectives clean and pure do not reference ritual purity. Um, You'll notice there's a lot of defilement in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And this isn't referencing that. Similarly, when you come to the New Testament, one of the things that you see is that a lot of the Pharisees were concerned with the outward manifestations of um, of the Old Testament and some of the traditions. They weren't very the Pharisees weren't very often corrected theologically. They were more often corrected because their heart didn't match what they were calling other people to do. So when Jesus' disciples go through and pluck grain on the Sabbath, they criticize him because, oh, well, you didn't follow this stipulation. You didn't do this. Um, you didn't eat with unwashed hands. And Jesus, what does Jesus tell him? And, well, no, actually, it doesn't say that anywhere. In the, no, he says the inwardness. Um, what come, it's not what comes into a man that defiles a man, but what goes out of him that defiles a man. Or what's in, I misquote that. But, um, these terms refer, clean refers to innocent and clean hands. You see, uh, he who has clean hands, this is often contrasted. We see clean, clean hands um, in Proverbs is contrasted with, is used for a person that's innocent and is contrasted with people who lie in wait for innocent blood. The adjective is the same word. Clean hands are probably also could also be later contrasted with um, blood-filled hands that we see in Isaiah. Isaiah uh, one fifteen says, "God will not listen to their outspread hands in prayer, if your hands are full of blood." Paul in the in the New Testament says in First Timothy two that he desires to see holy hands lifted up, without anger or quarreling. Thus, the idea is that of hands which do God's will without anger or bloodshed. One whose actions are pure. Secondarily, we see the pure of heart. Now, we're tempted to get overwhelmed by our own notions of heart. We think of heart in terms of Valentine's Day and sometimes contrast it with rational reasoning people. Um, We sometimes understand it devoid of 
reason. However, the understanding of heart here is the whole person. About half the time the heart is used is used in terms of thinking or reasoning. It's used for the whole spectrum. Reasoning, emotions, everything in the Old Testament. Psalm 73 refers to God being good to those that are pure in heart. And similarly, when Jesus preaches on the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the same... um, He says that the pure in heart are said to see God in Matthew 5. The phrase, the pure in heart, refers to the same words behind these in those psalms. When Jesus gives his beatitude, it's a reflection in part of the heart behind this psalm along with Psalm 15 about who may approach the Lord and his holy hill. These two refer, as I mentioned earlier, to the combined outward and inward actions. Wholehearted devotion. The pure in heart is a wholehearted seeking of God and desiring Him. The pure motives and thoughts and reflections behind the actions that Jesus so often mentions in the New Testament. The psalmist moves on um, to a couple of thoughts with similar ideas. We see, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So he's saying here are two do's, clean hands, pure hearts, here are two don'ts. Lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, what do, the, what do these things mean? Now, some take these both um, to refer to idolatry. Words worthless uh, or to what is false and deceitfully can... Some, the first word sometimes refers to idols. Worthless idols. You'll see that used elsewhere in Scripture. Um, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the idea. I think... It is a take on Deuteronomy 5 and the reference to the third commandment, not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, that's not easily seen, but I think um, the word lift up his soul to what is false. In Deuteronomy 5, the same word for take is a lifting up. We do not bear. We bear the name of the Lord. Um, and so what it's saying is what it's saying here is that not lifting up your soul to what is false is that we're not bearing the Lord's name falsely. It's a take on Deuteronomy 5. Jeremiah 14 refers to God's people as being called by the name of the Lord. This means that behind this understanding of those not bearing the life of the Lord falsely is that those who are in God's name are called by his name, and that we bear witness to that. That the things we do um, are a reflection on him. It's, I don't know if any of you have ever had a, had a father or someone tell you, you know, uh, everything you do is a reflection on me. <laughs> I haven't had that too often, but <laughs> occasionally. Um, it's kind of an idea similar idea here. Well-known passage from Exodus 19 declares the people of Israel to be a chosen nation and a royal 
priesthood, specially called by the name of the Lord, and were to bear his name honestly. And yet they did not do that. A lot of the concern you see that the Lord has in dealing with his people and dealing with the outside nations is with the glory and the holiness of his own name. First Peter, we see if um, it relates it to us as the church. We are God's chosen people. And we are, we bear his name. Are we bearing his name truly or falsely? The point of the psalmist was to express the understanding that the people were to live in accordance with his dictates, with his commands. They're to live lives that reflect his holiness. Do we? We must comport ourselves in a manner consistent with his name and his holiness. We see a lot of this first portion seems like a law, seems like law, if we were to use the law gospel dynamic. Um, The latter portion has a promise attached. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The The phrase he will receive could literally be rendered, he will lift up a blessing. This is not used to change the meaning, but to contrast it with lifting up his soul to what is false. He does not lift up his soul to what is false, but instead lifts up a blessing from the Lord. I think it also is alluding to the um, Aaron's priestly benediction where the Lord, in Numbers 6, 23-26, the Lord lifts up his countenance upon them. They will lift up a blessing. Secondarily, we're told that they will receive righteousness from the God of my salvation. The idea of vindication. We've all, especially recently, we've all seen a lot of courtroom drama. And my point is not to drag that out. But the point is, in that we see um, in any sort of court, when a person if a person when a person is tried and if they're declared guilty or not guilty. But what's the issue with us? The issue with us is that we're already guilty. The issue with us as humans is we're not innocent. We are guilty before a holy God. And yet, we see the dilemma that we're coming to here in Psalm 24. I think secondarily, it also, this vindication refers to a a coming. We as God's people, the coming King, the advent of the King, will vindicate His people. God will protect his people. We see in Exodus, um, one of the themes running through the ten plagues isn't just ten arbitrary things that God decided, oh, I'll do this and this and this, but he's setting up Israel as his chosen son versus Pharaoh, and he's knocking down each of their gods in turn. Not each of them, but a lot of the key, the key gods in turn. Um, And we see 
God will protect his people. Psalm 24, such as, 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, the ESV has the God of Jacob. If some of you are reading from the New American Standard, it just says Jacob. I think the idea here is just of whatever the case, it's saying that these are the true people of the Lord. The true people who seek the Lord manifest these qualities. Um, Romans 2, Paul refers to a people who are the people of children of Israel after the flesh and children of Israel after the spirit. So he's saying, who are the true children of Abraham? It's these people. These people who this. And that's the key problem, isn't it? Matthew, again, says that um, many people will come and say, Lord, Lord, have I not done these wonderful things in your name? And God, he will say, I will depart from me. I never knew you. The true people of the living God does what he commands. James 3 refers to faith without works being dead. The famous works that Catholics like to bring up when we say faith alone, um, despite the concept appearing throughout the New Testament. Um, James is referring to as the justification of one's own faith. The vindication of one's own faith. But you, we might go through this and you might be thinking, is he advocating some form of legalism? Is he saying this is how you get to be saved? No. It anticipates a coming drama, a coming conflict. Um, we recognize that scriptural testimony refers to man's sinfulness. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one that is in the flesh can do anything to please God. Romans 3 has a litany of citations from the Old Testament recognizing man's sin nature. So what is it that we need? We who are in Christ have what is required. We know the confrontation between a holy God and a just God who will vindicate the righteous and between an unrighteous people means that we, the unrighteous people, all deserve death and deserve to be cast out from His sight. But what do we see in the New Testament? We see that it is not we, the unrighteous people, who get killed, who get removed, who get destroyed. But Jesus, in our place, in my place, condemned he stood, the spotless Lamb of God. The great hymn, The Rock of Ages, explains, says, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? Thou must save, and thou alone. The conflict has come, but in the person of Christ. If those of us who are, if, peop, if you are outside of Christ, all that is needed is to repent and turn to Him. We who are in Christ 
we have the righteousness of God, and he purifies our heart. It, it pleases the Lord. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. As we discussed on Reformation Day, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have been given new robes. Our verdict has been given and we are free, not because of our own worth, but because we are in Christ, the innocent one, the spotless one. And not only are we in Christ, but God sees us as righteous and our imperfect good works that we do pleases Him. The things that we do, marred and tainted with sin though they are, God loves and God accepts. We can truly please Him, not because of our own merit, but because of Christ's merit. We have received a blessing, but it is not based off our own righteousness, but off of His. Moving on from this, we see the Holy God and the requirements to enter His presence to the final point on the King of Glory. Now this one I can't actually read without thinking of Handel's Messiah. Um, those of you that like to listen to that sort of thing, there's the, I'm one of them, but may not be everybody. So, But this, he, Handel puts this at the ascension because um, for a lot of Christians, this was associated with Ascension Day. For the for the um, for the Hebrews, actually, in the Greek translation of the psalm, it says a psalm of the Sabbath because it was associated with the Sabbath. Um, but we know some of us know this place from Handel's Messiah, if not for any other reason, because at least at Christmas, everybody listens to Handel's Messiah at Christmas, right? I think, or you should you should. Uh, but we see in. Seven in both verses seven and nine. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. And the same thing is repeated. Um, the gates likely referred to the gates of Zion, the gates of Jerusalem. Um, the metaphor of lifting up your heads is not the way the gates moved, because the ancient Hebrew gates did not go up; they swung out. Um, so I think the idea here is to rejoice, lifting up of one's head. We read earlier and from, uh, well, I alluded to number six, um, where God lifts up his countenance upon, upon you. It's an expression of joy, of rejoicing, of grace in that, sense, in that case. And so this means that we as the people of God, joyfully and with much rejoicing, were to acknowledge the kingship of the Lord. We see further in 8 and 10 the repeated question of, who is this King of Glory? We can see this. We could see this probably, imagine this in a formal liturgical setting. You have a question. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. We can, we can almost hear it. This emphasizes the joy and anticipation of the people of God and their King. Who is this King? This is a King who is described as the Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle, a mighty warrior, the Lord of hosts. All of these phrases refer to God as a victorious king. The Lord of hosts 
usually hosts refers to armies. So you could just as easily translate this as the Lord of armies. The Lord of hosts. Think of the servant of Elisha when he, sees, he turns and sees everybody out. And the Lord's hosts. The hosts of heaven that do battle on his behalf. The Song of Moses shortly after the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea celebrates the fact that the Lord as a man of war conquered the Egyptians. He drowned the Egyptians. And it's celebrating this fact. What should we take from this? What does this mean for us? The Lord is mine. I don't plan on going out into battle anytime soon. I mean, I guess you don't always plan for that, but I hope I don't go into battle anytime soon. Um, I think in application, this means that when we fight for the Lord, we do so in the strength of the Lord Almighty. What kind of battle do we see for us in the New Testament? Um, Ephesians 6. We'll turn over there. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Then we see the list of um, battle armaments. What is my encouragement to you? Well, in Ephesians 6, the battle armaments aren't uh, hastily drawn metaphors, but are drawn from Isaiah and other parts of the prophets in which God's people take up the armor of the Lord of the divine armor of Yahweh. This means, how do we do this? Is this something that we get up in the morning and say, all right, I'm going to put on the breastplate of righteousness today? No. We're clothed in that because we're clothed in Christ. Why do we have this power and this, this armor? Because we're already in Christ. We have this armor. We have the Lord of hosts, the mighty God behind us, And because of this, I want to encourage you to take heart. We win. Evangelize. The church wins. We have the power of the Lord. Don't worry. People may, um, people won't always like it, but we have the conquering warrior at our backs like the kid that has his older brother standing behind him guard him at the um from his from bullies more than that because we have the divine warrior against whom no one may conquer and no one may triumph and secondarily we see that christ not only helps us in this battle but christ through the cross triumphed over sin over death he is the conquering king. What did he, what did he conquer? 
O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? In the cross and in the resurrection of Christ, he's conquered over sin, over death. So we don't have to fear those things. We do not have to worry or fret. In closing, I just want to point to a couple of quick applications. I've gone through a little bit, as I mentioned earlier, because God, the King of glory, is on our side. We can trust the church will prevail. We as his people will prevail. This does not necessarily mean everything's going to smooth sailing um, from here on out, but it means that our mission is secure, and so we can go out and get involved in it. We can go out and evangelize. We can talk to our friends, to our neighbors, because God is with us. God is at our side. God is behind us. Second, the two main tensions in the psalm are the tensions between the King of glory, the Holy One, and we, the unholy people, incapable of following the commands of verses 3-6. through six. This would ultimately lend itself to a meeting that would not go well for us. but And it would go poorly for us. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This can be done in one of two ways. Willingly, at our own bended knee, before Jesus Christ the Mighty, the one whom we recognize as Lord, or unwillingly, at the feet of a conquering king and mighty king. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but submitted himself willingly to death, even the death of the cross, so that through his death and through his work in us, we might be not just as servants, not just as slaves, but adopted children of God that willingly bend the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. If you are not there, I pray that you would repent and believe in the gospel and talk to Pastor John, or most of the people in here would probably be, I would be willing to talk to you too. Um, thirdly, do you have fears? I think everybody has fears to some extent. A lot of the stuff we see now peddles in fear. Um, the stuff we watch, <clears throat> whatever side, <clears throat> whatever side we're on, <clears throat> politically, whatever, our side tends to peddle in fear. So the, you know we need to drive readership up. So we got to do something. Um, but one of the themes in the psalm is the Lord of Armies who conquers all of His enemies. He drives out those who are opposed Him. He's the victorious King. So we do not need to fear. The great hymn that Psalm, the great hymn, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, reflects on Psalm 46, which understands that He is a fortress for us. 48 states that God makes His city secure forever and defends His people and causes enemies to be scattered, according to Psalm 68. Thus, we can be assured that whatever happens to us, it is within the will of God and that he has our back. All the Lord's battles are victorious, so whatever situation we find ourselves in, we know it is the Lord's doing. 
and he has it for our good in mind. Finally, we, as God's people, have been given the righteousness of Christ and the purity of hands and cleanliness of heart required to enter God's presence. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul states in Ephesians 4, live in a manner worthy of your calling. We have this. The, Paul has, the Apostle Paul typically or often has the dynamic of you are this, therefore do this. This is who you are in Christ. This is what you are to do. I want to urge you, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Do what you know to do. And in closing, let me simply ask, who is this King of glory who has so mightily conquered the enemies of sin and death? This is the Lord. Cling to him that we might be saved. Let's close in prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you that you are good to us, that not because of our worth, but because of your worthiness, that we are accepted into your family and that we might serve you with our lives. I pray that you would prosper the work of our hands, that it might bring you glory. And you might use us to further your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.